In Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 through 19, uh, God is speaking to Abraham, the first man that God had called out from the fallen world um, to introduce himself to and to make a covenant that would bring salvation into the earth. And so <clears throat> Abraham's called the father of faith because when God called him, Abraham believed God and he responded in faith. And of course, through the children that God brought to Abraham and to his descendants came the seed of Abraham, Jesus, the Messiah of the world. And so when God said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, he was talking about, about Abraham not only building a family that God would give him, but that family multiplying through generations and then, of course, Jesus would come, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, the Jewish Messiah. And when he went to Calvary's cross, having passed through Herod's court, or, or uh, um, Pilate's court, he was the Savior of the world. And all the nations of the world have received blessing because of him. And so God's speaking to Abraham, and now you've got to picture Abraham. There's no churches anywhere. There's no knowledge of God, really. Uh, at best, there's just kind of a, a self-styled, perhaps, uh, you know, folk religion that moves among the tribes. And maybe some people believe in God, know God, but there's, there's really no guidance. There's just nothing. And so here's Abraham. He knows that God has spoken to him. And so God is laying out his plan, and Abraham's taking it in, and he's believing what God is saying to him. So I want to just grab this little snippet of what God says to Abraham about the great future that is ahead of him as he obeys the Lord. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. That is together packed in those couple little verses, probably one of those examples in the Bible of the whole plan of God wrapped up in a practical command that we can follow and see the Lord bring all that he intended to bring through the coming of Jesus the Messiah. That's a verse, if you've got one of those pretty nice Bibles, you don't like marking them up, you know, unless it's really important, mark that one. Because that is a great verse. So I want to share some um, vision-building encouragements with our dads and with our fathers this morning. And I particularly want our daughters and mothers and wives, so men and women listen, because this model is God's model for the way he wants to bring blessing to people in the earth. Now, <clears throat> as I look around, it's, pretty obvious that most of us have had our children and maybe maybe some grandchildren maybe maybe more but you know most fathers are raising their children at the same time that they're trying to figure out what's important in life 
you know, they're in their 20s, maybe 30s, and they're, they're trying to sort out what's important and where, where are the values in life that I want to pursue. So they're, they're trying to discover that and figure it out at the same time they and their, their wife are, are having children and they're raising a family. So the greatest asset, the greatest asset that a father can have is what I would call godly clarity. You know what clarity is. That's what you go to the lens crafters to get clarity for your eyes again. Well, in your mind and in your heart, you want godly clarity. And it's the most powerful tool, the greatest asset that a father has as he faces um, the challenges of fatherhood and raising a family. Now, Satan's war against the truths, a few simple truths I want to share with you this morning, is absolute evidence of their priceless value. You can always tell what's important to God because you'll always find Satan fighting his hardest and building his most abominable works and telling his biggest lies concerning those things. So this is obviously important. Now I want to stress godly clarity before I move on and give you a verse for it. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, 17 and 18. Paul writes, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may grant you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him by having the eyes of your heart flooded with light so that you can know and understand the hope with which God has called you and how rich is the glorious inheritance He has in His people. Now for me, that is a fatherhood verse, a fatherhood statement. Dads, I want you to know Paul's writing. I want you to understand the inheritance that God wants to pass on through you to your children that he has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. In order for you to have that, you need clarity in your heart and in your mind. You need certainty. Now, as I said before, this, is, this comes at a time when most dads are trying to figure out things that perhaps, hopefully, they've gotten themselves um, all settled about when they hit their 30s and their 40s, but they're still a little bit in a state of flux. But, but Paul writes how absolutely critical it is that the few important things that God points out in his word that are absolutely critical, that you know them, and that you're able to articulate them, that you're able to not just model them in front of your children, you're able to explain them and help them to grasp them and learn. So godly clarity is essential. If you're going to be a successful dad, like I know that most, if not all of you, have been or are, um, you know that you need to have God's truths worked out in your life, and you need to be able to present them. Um, in that verse that I read out of uh, Genesis, where God is meeting with Abraham, he makes three statements that I'd like to just bring three points out of. And this isn't the, the bulk of the message. This is kind of just give us a little background as to why this is so significant and important. Um, he says to Abraham, first off, he says, Abraham shall surely become a great mighty nation. So, Oftentimes we read when God gives a prophetic word like that, we think, well, God's God and God's just going to fulfill it. 
But the reality is, is if you've, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that, that God's ability to fulfill the things he says are very much involved in our involvement with him and our obedience to him. And so when God said concerning Abraham, surely Abraham will become a mighty nation. Through him the Messiah will come. All the nations of the world will be blessed. He says, Abraham will become a great nation because I know him and that he will be a great father and he will train his children after him. And that's why he will become a great nation. So a man's greatest work is the contributions that he makes as a father to his family, his community, and to his nation. Great nations are built by the generational vision of dads, young dads, who understand the importance of generation. As they think about their lives, as they consider their families, they realize, I've married this wonderful woman uh, that, that God has given me, and I am endeavoring to be a wonderful husband to her. We're raising these children, not just for our fulfillment, not just so that we can be happy in life. You know, people are not happy without a mission. Without a vision, people wander and they perish. And so the, the dad realizes that there's true joy in having a generational vision regarding himself and his family. And so the man's greatest contribution is the, the contribution he makes to his family with that generational vision and the work that he does as a father. The second thing that, that God said to Abraham, I've already touched on it, was I know him and he is going to become a great nation because, and here's the second one, because he will command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, if you think about that phrase for a minute, God didn't say he's going to go out and he's going to figure out what's right and he's going to do it. God spoke of righteousness as a way that is already established. So the Lord has already established righteousness and judgment. They don't need to be reinvented. We don't need to, as a new generation, go out and figure out what justice looks like. We don't have to go out and restyle and reconfigure what righteousness is based on whatever the trends of society might be. The Bible says there is the way of righteousness, the way of justice. So it's already established because it comes from the eternal God who knew the end from the beginning. God never set creation in motion figuring I'm creative, I've got God-like abilities, I'm going to work this thing out as I go. God had it all worked out before he opened his mouth and said, let there be light. So righteousness and justice is established. It doesn't need refining, it needs keeping. And nations thrive whose families keep the way of righteousness. And the nations are doomed to fail whose families forsake the way of righteousness in order to go about and create their own righteousness and their own justice. You know, as much as we love our children, we don't have the right to alter what is just and what is righteous 
because we love our children more than we love justice, more than we love righteousness. Our job is for them to keep the way of righteousness. And you know, righteousness and justice are one of those things that you can't beat into people with, with the sledgehammer of legalism or with laws. They're only kept when people understand and appreciate what they are. If you can help a person to understand the value of righteousness and the value of justice, they'll keep it because they see how wonderful it is. See, God knows that his way is not only the only way, it is the wonderful way. And he knows the value of it. He knows that, that as mankind discovers what is righteous and God's justice, they'll discover along with it the grace and the agape and the love of God, those virtues, make it attractive to people. So by keeping the way of righteousness is the way that Abraham will receive the fulfillment of what God has. And that brings us to the third point, is that God said, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham all that he's practiced. So we've already kind of mentioned that, that practicing faithful, godly fathering is what positions men, families, and nations to see the will of God come to pass. How many of you realize that you can't quote Chronicles, if my people, which are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, and just stop there and pray and say, now God, heal our land, make the craziness not succeed, help righteousness to be fulfilled. The reality is, is that prayer only has power when the lips that pray it, particularly say, for example, when I was on Mother's Day, we spoke about the future sits in the hearts of our daughters. Today it's Father's Day. God made man equally, male and female created he them to bring forth his image and likeness. So today it's the Father's turn. But it is the faithfulness of dads to the Lord, to keeping his way, that will cause God's blessing, God's help, God's repair to come to a nation. Having big rallies, having, you know, weekly prayers, all great, but the real foundational work is never going to be done if fathers at home don't do it in their own households. You have to Set your house in order, and you need to do it by leadership. You can't just demand, can't come in swinging a Bible and uh, demand that your children adhere. You've got to win. He that wins souls is wise. Okay, so those three things we just want to bring out of the, the, the prophetic word that God gave to Abraham. Now, what I want to do is, remaining minutes, is just share with you... Um, a little bit about the practical mission of fatherhood. Um, fathers who are motivated by a sense of purpose are stronger and happier as they face family trials and the trials of life. Fathers that lack a sense of purpose, they don't understand their fatherhood as a purpose 
above just bringing happiness and fulfillment uh, to the little ones in their house, their wives or themselves, but they don't understand a greater purpose, always going to have problems being happy. And the reason is, is that if you avoid the fact that raising children is going to bring stress and suffering to your life, you're going to struggle with confusion, you're going to struggle with anger, and you're going to struggle with depression if you don't know those wonderful children that you and your wife made are going to bring some incredible unhappiness and frustration into your life. It's just part of dealing with humans. Praise God. You know, I, I look at people today, and I'm always a little bit amazed. I love dogs. I like having pets. But I look at this, this kind of uh, drift if you will, misplaced affection. People will get their pets and then drop thousands of dollars to clear up the itch and to, to you know, take care of the little bumps, you know, that they're getting on their skin or they got a blockage in their intestines. They're going to take them to the Mayo Clinic of, of veterinary science. And, and uh, it's amazing that the effort, the work, and the money people put in to their pets because they embrace the fact if I'm going to have a pet you know I'm I'm going to have to face some troubles so we need to realize our children are much more valuable than our dogs and our cats and uh, they are going to be a problem because they're just children and they're trying to find their way so face your fatherly challenges as your God-given mission. This is my mission. My children, that is my mission in life more than anything else. If you do that, you'll have the Holy Spirit as the partner in your family. But if dads don't make the raising of their children their mission, if they don't see that generational mission of passing faith and love, preparing their children then they're going to have struggle on their own. And God wants to be in that struggle with you and help you. So there's three basic elements that I want to share, and this is what we're going to do with the rest of our message. Um, these are three basic elements of, of godly fatherhood, and they're found, in all, of all places, in the life of the stepfather of Jesus, of whom very little was said in the Bible, Joseph. And they are righteousness, responsibility, and religion. So righteousness. Joseph falls in love with Mary. They're betrothed and he finds out that she's with child. And the angel of the Lord comes to him. He's upset. He's a good man and he's planning he's going to put her away. Uh, he's going to break the engagement, put her away privately because he doesn't want to shame her or hurt her. And then the angel of God comes to him, speaks to him at night, right? And it says, Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man because he did not want to disgrace her. He intended to divorce her privately. And when he contemplated this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So, ah, he wakes up in the morning God has spoken to him. 
Joseph could have processed the revelation about Mary's pregnancy with pride, with anger, with legalism. A lot of men do react when their dreams are broadsided like that. He probably felt those things. Joseph probably felt his pride damaged. I'm sure he felt anger. Um, and uh, we know that he was thinking of you know, handling this legalistically. Although he felt those things, he didn't act on any of them. God put something in his heart. God knew he was a righteous man. And he chose to lead his family in love and in righteousness instead of being guided by his own heart. You know, some men allow their ability to act righteously to be undermined by their personal disappointments and humiliations. You know, they're all about doing the right thing until what they want to do falls apart. And then they blow a gasket. And all the careful, righteous acting and gets blown apart. So a righteous man is somebody who's righteous no matter what happens in their life. They adjust themselves. They adapt. Joseph set aside the disappointment that he had over the loss of his own dreams. And he immediately adjusted himself to God's righteousness in order to lead his family. Mary has Jesus. They're in Bethlehem. He's figured out in his mind, okay, we'll, we'll probably go back up to Nazareth and we'll, um, I'll set up shop and, and this is what we'll do. And all of a sudden, the angel of God comes to him and says, you're going to have to flee. Herod's killing all of the babies and you need to take the child and you need to relocate to Egypt. Well, I've never been to Egypt. What am I going to do in Egypt? Joseph sets aside his disappointment. Notice that, you know, Mary is a big character in the life of Jesus, but we don't see a lot about Joseph. We wonder what kind of impact did Joseph have. The fact that that family was guided and that family was led in righteousness by what God wanted for that household is evidence that Joseph was a righteous man and put God first. The second thing in Joseph's life that is evidence of a godly, successful father is responsibility. You knew that was coming, right? Responsibility. But I want to say a few things about responsibility. I think that might, um, that might expand your idea and your vision of responsibility. Joseph was ready to take responsibility for his family. Um, he was going to do it in his own vision that he had worked out. And, you know, responsible men, they think about what needs to happen. They plan for the future. They lay out. They do their absolute best. But the vision that Joseph had for his family was completely overruled by a different set of circumstances that blew up his plans. And so off to Egypt, not knowing what was going to meet them there, he takes Jesus and he and Mary, they relocate. Joseph's sense of responsibility didn't end when his plans blew up. His sense of responsibility survived the upheaval because his sense of responsibility wasn't rooted in his own abilities. It was rooted in God. Each of these times, 
he was following what the Lord had put in his heart. The angel of God had spoken to him. And likewise in our life, our plans oftentimes get upended. And our sense of responsibility, if it's always tied just to ourselves, I know what my limits are, I know what I can do, and I'm going to stand fast, I'm going to be a responsible dad. If that is where your responsibility comes from, your responsibility is going to find an end when your plans find an end. Joseph's sense of responsibility was before God. He was a man who saw himself as being accountable and responsible to God. Therefore, his responsibility was going to survive any kind of explosion being blown up, the circumstances being torn apart. Joshua, in Joshua 24, most of us know the verse in verse 15, but as for me and my house, we will what? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Not serve the plan, not serve the program. Listen, I'm not a man against plans. We have plans, and I believe in programs. Organization's important. But God is the one who directs. God is the one who directs day by day and long range. God is the God of purpose. So Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he, notice he spoke for his family. That's not easy to do when you've got a number of kids. They're all different. Some of them are a little easier to deal with than others. And you're speaking over your whole family and saying, we will serve the Lord. If you are doing that and your plan is, I'm going to force them into compliance. I'm going to make sure that my household, and then what do you do, you know, when your favorite son, the one you really like, um, gets 12, 13, 14 years old, and he's just, you see this kind of different way exhibiting itself in him and rising up, and you're dumbfounded, you don't know what to do, but how am I going to, how am I going to deal with this? God loves your son. God loves your daughter. God knows them. God has a plan for them. Your responsibility is before God. He'll guide you. He'll lead you. In fact, Proverbs 22 and 6 says, again, another one you're probably familiar with, train up a child in the way that he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. It doesn't say anything there about there not being a little diversion in between. Because those little diversions happen, don't they? But when they're old, they won't depart from it. The phrase, train up a child in the way. In the way. The target of a father's responsibility. When a father takes responsibility to train up his children, what has he got in his mind, in his imagination as a target? What is the target of his imagination? The Bible says, train up a child in the way. You need to understand that when God said, train them up in the way, the word the way isn't a noun, it's an adverb. In other words, the way is not referring to the career that they must have or what they're going to do with their life. The way is an adverb and it describes the character of their life. So God is saying, train them up, not in the right career path, train them up in the right character. 
so that whatever they do in life, they will do it with a character that will bring God into their life and they'll succeed because they're living as unto the Lord. That is what the word, the way means. Godly fathers don't sub out their responsibility to schools, sports, coaches, and counselors. All those things are great. They, they provide a great benefit. They can help in molding and aiming your children, but they can't do what only you can do as a father. Only you can truly model what true manliness is to your children. And of course, what true manliness is today, of course, is under tremendous attack for the very reasons that I said in the beginning of this message. But don't be deterred or discouraged. You not only have the responsibility, you have the ability from God to model what true manliness is to your children. And let me tell you that your sons need an image to aim for of what manliness is. They're trying to grow up and be a man. And don't leave it to the coach. Don't leave it to the counselors. Good God, don't leave it to the teachers. Because they got plenty to say. They will mold your children. And they'll direct them. But they're not going to direct them in the way of righteousness and justice. They're going to direct them in whatever the current, um, current ideologies are of the trending society. And by the way, it's not just your sons. Your daughters. Your daughters need to have a very specific, strong image of manliness because they're going to need that when it comes their time to go out and pick a husband. There are a lot of dads who have just been heartbroken because they, they thought that by just loving their daughters and uh, letting, you know, uh, uh, honoring their mother, all good things, and then they wonder, why did my daughter go out and marry that? <laughs> now, we can't absolutely assure what our kids are going to do, but you can get a running start. The Bible says when they're old, they won't depart from it. Hopefully they won't get a bad marriage in between. But the reality is that both your sons and daughters need to understand what real manliness looks like. Godly dads are the ones that demonstrate this. They demonstrate that following Jesus is manly. Faithfully loving one woman as your wife for your entire life. That's manly. Guiding a family with patience. Manly. Overcoming disappointments. Also manly. Falling without failing and quitting. Manly. And serving God and helping others is manly. That is what true manliness is. You can take those values and fit them in almost any uh, career in, in life and be a good man and a godly man. But your children need that. Brings us to the third and final, final practical example 
that Joseph lived. And that was the word religion. And you don't almost never hear me use the term religion because we, we think of our relationship with Jesus as relationship, not religion. The word religion has almost become anathema in, uh, in churches because it refers to the by-rote traditions and, and things that people do without having a relationship with God or without necessarily obeying Him. But I want to use the word religion as the Bible really uses it. Pure religion, the Bible says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Let me say that again. James wrote that, by the way, James, the brother of Jesus. In the first chapter of James, verse 21, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the corrupt world corrupt you. Wow, that's... That's pure religion. You see, the word religion expands and takes in the idea of your relationship with God, how it impacts others around you. So that religion, you know, people say, my religion's private. And they're talking about what's between them and God. But Jesus said, if you follow me, the world's going to know about it. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. You know, oh, magnify the Lord with me. So my life should magnify God. That's what religion is, the practical application and impact of your life on society because you have a relationship with God. So that's the third responsibility, third asset, third tool that dads have, and they are responsible to bring that in play into their households. The man who wrote those words as I said, was also the son of Joseph, the carpenter, Jesus' dad. And so we know what kind of a man Joseph was. We know that he was a man not just of, uh, of uh, responsibility and of uh, righteousness, but he was a man of godly religion. He modeled it in front of his kids because not only was he raising the Son of God, he was also raising one of his brothers. He had four brothers, number of sisters. We don't know how many. One of his brothers, James, wrote the book of James. And he looked back in his life and he said, genuine religion is keeping yourself undefiled and uncorrupted from the world and reaching out and helping widows and people in distress around you. Your children are watching you. I know you dads know that. And if a child can find godliness in his earthly father, he's more likely to find a father in God. And a father becomes a bridge between his children and God when he talks to his children like God. Your children aren't going to come to know God if they don't hear the voice of God through you. The way you talk to them and what you say, you don't realize it perhaps. You're modeling God. You are in the image of God. I know that mom also models God. And in many families, when mom opens her mouth, God has spoken. <laughs> but, but it's not a good thing when husbands just back up 
and become passive and let mom just be the voice of God. Let her involvement with the day-to-day -day with the kids be the voice of God. You're missing a great opportunity to furnish your children with one of the most important gifts you can send them out into the world with. The ability to see when they look at the idea of God, to see a warm, wise, caring, and engaged father. Um, a godly father speaks. I guess that's the point that I'm making, is he talks. He doesn't lecture his kids to death. He doesn't talk to them to death. He speaks to them. He studies their personality, their character, each of them, finds the best way to reach each heart, and he makes sure that he speaks the things that God once said to that daughter, to that son. Mark 1.11 says, A voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. I want you to realize that the father of the Lord Jesus Christ knew that his son, even though he was 30 years old, needed to hear the voice of his father. The voice of a father speaking, godly speaking to his son, speaking to his daughter brings one of the most important things you can transmit to a child, that is a sense of belonging. A child that truly has embedded in their heart a sense of belonging will find more strength to turn down the temptations of the enemy when they come around in their life because of that belonging. They belong to something that's good, something that's large, something that is protecting, something where they are known. A lot of children drift away for the same reason that wives and husbands drift away from each other. They're living in a family in a relationship where they're no longer being seen or heard or known. It's so important that living under the same roof, we know one another, we hear one another. Sometimes when we come home from spending eight hours or longer studying and thinking all about the, the dynamics of our job, we don't have much left when we walk through the door. And I remember doing that, pastoring a large church and uh, having to be in the office 24-7, coming home late the end of the day. You know, there were eager kids jumping up and down like Mexican jumping beans who wanted to hear from Dad. And all, more often than not, I'd walk through the door and the thought would hit me at that moment, oh, I should have been thinking about something I could say to my son or my daughter, something I could do with them. That's why planning things is always a good idea. If you have a plan, like we used to do the Monday night thing, Heather, we'd go out and, uh, you know, if I could sort of blend food into it, I, could, I knew I was always going to keep that plan. So it'd be like, you know, the kids would, I'd take each of one, them out every week, a different one. That week we would go out and we'd just eat whatever we want, slurp down whatever we wanted to slurp down and spend FaceTime together. It was great having that plan because a lot of times, like I said, I'd come through the door spent. But I'm saying to you that one of the most important things is to take time, put it above and beyond your job, to think about your sons and daughters. Think deeply. Study them. You know, my wife said years ago, she said, uh, when the Bible says study, uh, raise up a child the way they should go, 
you have to take into account the way they should go. Each child has a different bent, a different personality. And you can't just ramrod each one of them through the process like, like cattle in the Kansas City stockyards. So a father who speaks is a father that instills belonging in his son. Let's wrap this up and just say that your children can learn from you how to follow the Lord with dignity through life's hardships, and they can learn how to rebound in grace from disappointments and failures. All important lessons. That's the way they should go in life. And a Sunday school teacher gave an assignment to all the children in the class, draw pictures of God. And all the kids in the class got busy with their crayons and their little tongue is between their teeth and they're drawing pictures of God. And when it was all finished, she looks at all the pictures and they're holding up their work and they, uh, some of them were pictures of rainbows and some of them you know, were, were stick figures with great big hands and stuff. And that was God. But the pastor's daughter came to the pastor's daughter. And the pastor's daughter showed her picture. And it was a man in a suit and a tie. <laughs> it wasn't the insurance salesman. She said, I don't know what God looks like. So I drew my daddy instead. And that, at the end of the day, is where you want to end up. I don't know what God looks like, so I drew my dad. And that is what God was trying to say to Abraham. I, I can take care of forming the nations. I can bring the Messiah. But you must have that relationship with your children. And with that, I'm going to uh, go ahead and stop. You can close up your Bibles or turn off your devices. And I'd like to invite all of you to come. We're going to gather around this prayer table and close.